Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, November the 28th, 2023. If you trust the writers, we're living in a paranoid world where everyone's being persecuted, everyone's terrified to open their mouth. You're judging from books like um, uh, The Cancelling of the American Mind, Cancel Culture Undermines Trust and Threatens Us All by Greg Lukianoff and Ricky Schlott. Both were on my show and they both suggested that things are as tough now as they were in the uh, McCarthyite period where everyone got put in jail for their own opinions. Um, sounds a little dramatic. Maybe it is. At least my guest today seems to believe it is. Um, he believes that cancel culture has always been a problem, particularly for comedy, which he's an expert. Cliff Nesteroff uh, has written three books on comedy, politics, and culture, the first of which was The Comedians, Drunk Thieves, Scoundrels, and the History of American Comedy. The second, we had a, a real estate problem, a, a book about Native American comedy, and a book which is out today, Outrageous, A History of Show Business and the Culture Wars. And Cliff is joining us from his publisher's office in New York City. So Cliff, we've always been, or you Americans, you've always been paranoid. Is that the narrative of your new book? <laughs> I, I, I like that. I, it's not how I describe it at all, but I like the idea of it. Um, well, I don't know if paranoia is the right word, but certainly there's always been contempt for show business going back to the Puritan era and even the colonial era. Um, I don't agree with the previous guest whose book you showed on the screen. I find them to be um, engaging in hysteria themselves. I believe that there is more. That's the man. Yeah, I, believe... I agree. I got into trouble with uh, with uh, Luciano, who seemed to suggest that I, I didn't get it. All these people were going to jail. I haven't seen any of them in jail. No, not at all. I don't have time in jail, so what do I know? Um, I believe that there's more free expression uh, for people in the arts today, certainly in film, television, music, comedy, than any previous era in American history that you can name. If you look at the 20th century, criticism of religion was taboo for at least 70% of the century until 1969-70. Things started to open up a little bit. It was still pretty taboo. As late as 1980, HBO, which was supposed to be a vector for free speech for comedy, would not allow uh, comedy about abortion. They censored comedy about abortion in an election special that HBO ran in 1980. Um, Political discussion and criticism in comedy and elsewhere was ultimately taboo for most of network radio's existence and television's existence until relative recent history, the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. You still cannot swear on network television in America, and those restrictions go back to the dawn of TV in the late 1940s. However, you can criticism relig criticize religion in comedy today. You can engage in political criticism and commentary in comedy today. You can swear on satellite radio, on cable television and streaming services. Compare the lack of freedom to traditional AM and FM radio for the entire 20th century to what you can say on podcasts and satellite radio today. 
I think the evidence is clear. We have more freedom of expression today, not less. That being said, there are some new taboos. Most fall into the category of slurs, bigotry, or at least that which is perceived as slurs or bigotry. And taken uh, in, in comparison with the totality of uh, the 20th century, that's a minimal amount of taboos compared to what was off limits for the entire 20th century and, of course, the entire 19th century and 18th century. I think it's obvious that we have more freedom of expression in comedy, in television, in film, in music today uh, compared to as recently as the 1980s and 90s when a group like Two Live Crew was put on trial for obscenity, whereas someone like Carly B does a song like Wet Ass Pussy and it's a huge hit and she is not persecuted. Yeah, my, my daughter played me there and I have to admit, I, I tried to ban it, but she wouldn't turn it off. Well, there you go. What about within the universities, though? Uh, you know, I'm, I don't want to speak on behalf of Lukianov or Schlarten. Uh, like you, I'm not a, necessarily a big fan of their work. But I think their focus is on certain institutions, perhaps outside Hollywood and network television, the universities in particular. Does your book go there, or is that an entirely different subject? No, I go there a little bit. You have to look at the foundation that Greg Lukanoff and his co-author work for, the Fire Foundation, and who funds it. Um, their foundation is funded largely by the Charles Koch Foundation, the Bradley Foundation, the DeVos Foundation, and the Scaife Foundation. All of them are very well-known uh, bankrollers of the far right in the United States. Now, why would they... Yeah, I, I have to jump in here, Cliff. I, I don't want to turn this into a an opportunity to, to beat up Schlott and... and no, um, we'll, we'll set them aside. Uh, and, and also, in defense of those guys, I mean, to be fair to... Um, Lukianov in particular, he's been critical of both the left and the right. I certainly don't see him as a I as think, some sort of puppet of the right. Well, I do think they use that as a Trojan horse. They've hired former ACLU lawyers to give the facade of being uh, equal players. But the people that bankroll that organization have bankrolled the conversation that exists about what's going on on college campuses, which is why I bring it up, because comedy and comedians have been involved in that conversation used as examples that there's no freedom of speech on the college campus. But if you look at who invites most of the speakers who have been protested in college campuses, not comedians, but political speakers, many of them are funded by the same foundations. And when people object to them on college campuses in the act of protest, well, what is protest? Protest itself is an act of free expression. But the way it is categorized by those foundations in the media channels that they fund is that they're not uh, uh, engaging in free expression, they're engaging in censorship, that they're engaging in cancel culture. So while it's two different viewpoints that are clashing together, a speaker who is um, accused of bigotry perhaps, and protesters who are uh, objecting to the speaker, they're actually both engaging in free expression, but clashing with each other on viewpoint. That's how I see it, but that doesn't seem to be the way that is generally categorized in the press. It's categorized as free speech for the speaker and censorship from the protesters rather than free speech versus free speech. What about the McCarthyite comparison? I was particularly troubled by that. And what's your take on the idea of comparing 
the supposed cancel culture of today with the with the well, anti-communist yeah. witch hunts of the 1950s and, and you're an expert on hollywood you you live in hollywood um of course hollywood bore the brunt of that well, I think it's a little bit of a cliche to compare anything to McCarthyism. It's sort of like people in politics comparing their adversaries to Hitler. It's overdone. There's other analogies we could make. Who, Cliff? Uh, I hadn't heard of that guy. Who is he? <laughs> oh, he's a he's a very controversial. He was very much in favor. He's the of guy Cancel with the mustache. Uh, yeah, at one point in his life, I believe he had a Charlie Chaplin mustache. Yeah, uh, but I think that the McCarthy analogy is a little bit vague because cancel culture itself, the concept is vague. We have to look at specific examples, then make the analogy. So we could possibly make an analogy to somebody in show business like Jay Johnston, who was a comedian that was uh, much beloved. He was on Mr. Show, a comedy program on HBO with Bob Odenkirk and David Cross in the 1990s. He was on the Sarah Silverman show in the early 2000s, and he was on the popular program Bob's Burgers recently. He was present at the January 6th debacle, and when it was revealed that he was there and being investigated by the FBI, he was fired by Bob's Burgers, and he has not worked again since in Hollywood. Now, he is under investigation. I understand that people disagree completely with what happened there on January 6th. They have a right to be upset, express their feelings about it, but his circumstance is sort of in a way similar to McCarthyism in the sense that he cannot work in Hollywood right now. Nobody will hire him and it's because he was present at that uh, political riot. It's not based on anything he said specifically. It's not based on anything that he has been charged with yet. Doesn't mean it might not happen. But he was fired from that show and has not worked since and has not- So otherwise, if, if you want to get some work in Hollywood, don't don't attend insurrections, or at least if you attend this insurrection, um, make <laughs> yeah, sure that you're, you're wearing a face mask so people don't know who you are. We are talking <laughs> with Cliff. Um, we are talking with Cliff uh, Nesteroff, uh, the author of Outrageous: A History of Showbiz and the Culture Wars. Cliff, what about history of comedy? We've done some shows about whether or conservatives or liberals are funnier than the other. Conservatives think they're funny. Liberals think they're funny. They believe that conservatives can't be funny. Um, uh, uh, liberals think that uh, conservatives think liberals can't be funny. Um, what's your sense of the history of comedy in terms of the culture wars? Have have the left always been trying to shut the right up, and the right always trying to shut the left up? Generally, I think when it comes to political comedy, all of us really only enjoy the political comedy that we agree with. When you disagree with it, it's hard to laugh at it. However, if somebody isn't explicitly political and you don't know that they're conservative or you don't know that they're liberal, we can generally enjoy that. So there are many comedians, we don't know what their politics were. We don't know what Rodney Dangerfield's politics were. So everybody can enjoy it. If he went on some rant against something that you love, your attitude would change very quickly. Um, in terms of left-wing versus right-wing, uh, throughout the history of protest in show business and elsewhere, nobody wants to confess that they're engaging in censorship. They'll cloak it in other language. On the right, people will say, well, it's not censorship. We're protecting the children. On the left, people will say, well, it's not censorship. We're suppressing racism. But of course, they're both censorship. It's just that each side believes that they're doing so for a noble cause and that the other side 
is doing it for a not noble cause. So traditionally, throughout the history of show business, certain showbiz controversies like the birth of a nation, Gone with the Wind, Amos and Andy in comedy, those were pr protested by ethnic minorities, racial minorities, uh, civil rights groups, and left-wingers because they believe them to be bigoted. On the right, there have been campaigns to censor textbooks because they taught black history or because they mentioned Martin Luther King, which many people on the far right at the time considered basically a Soviet conspirator. They thought that the civil rights movement and the Civil Rights Act of 1964 would lead to a communist tyranny in the United States, which of course didn't happen, but many censorship movements uh, throughout the 20th century were uh, uh, driven on those grounds. Is there anything, uh, Cliff, you're a historian of, of comedy and of media in general, is there anything, has there ever been anything like the internet? Lots of arguments about whether the internet is just old media in a new technological form, in a, in a new wrapping. Some people believe that the internet is genuinely different. What do you think? I think it is generally different, but I think there are these strange moments of transition throughout history whenever there is a new type of media introduced. Each new phase of media becomes a very effective tool for propaganda. Uh, prior to newspapers, the propaganda wasn't effective, and newspapers very quickly became a vehicle for both truth and fiction and the demonization of whoever the adversary of the newspaper owner happened to be at any given time. Same thing happened uh, with radio. And when radio was first introduced in the 1920s, there was a great debate. Will it be used as a vehicle for mass education or should corporations be in charge to make it a vehicle for mass advertising? There was a belief that it would be a university of the air and that people in rural areas could suddenly take lessons from the radio and learn things that they wouldn't otherwise have access to. Of course, we know how it played out. It became a vehicle for advertising. Television comes in, the same thing. And when television became popular in the early 1950s, bookstores reported a drastic drop in sales and libraries reported a drastic drop in book circulation. So there was this fear that people were becoming stupider because of the advent of television in the 1950s. The same fears have played out with the invention and the amplification of the internet. I think the big difference with the internet is that we're not really turning it off. You know, it is constant. And the things that we hear on social media are repeated over and over and over. And it has this sort of insidious effect in our minds that leads to anxiety and potential hysteria. Whereas in the old days, you might read the newspaper once and throw it away. Now we're rereading the same headline over and over and over all day long whenever there's a lull in our lives. And I think that does have um, a strange effect on the human mind. We're speaking with Cliff Nestroff, the author of a fascinating new book, an important new book, I think, outrageous. Uh, a History of Showbiz and the Culture Wars. It's an attempt to uh, remain calm yeah, amidst all the hysteria about what you can and can't say and what you can and can't laugh at. Um, when it comes to free media, I'm a big fan of uh, our sponsor, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. It's not always particularly funny, but it's serious and relevant uh, and certainly not censorous. I strongly suggest everyone read it. I'm going to run a short feature about Liberties, and then we'll be back with Cliff to talk more about comedy, American culture, 
uh, and where we can go to make sure that we can laugh as much as we possibly can. So don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We're speaking uh, with one of America's leading historians of culture, and particularly of comedy, Cliff Nesteroff, the author of a new book, Outrageous. Cliff, do you think that the comedy that we hear on media, whether it's mainstream traditional media, which seems to be shrinking, and the internet, does it reflect our private humor? Uh, or is there always a big gulf between what we laugh at when the doors are shut and the windows are shut and what we watch uh, online or on television or listen to on the radio? Well, they're a different delivery system. So, you see, my mother doesn't really care about comedy. She doesn't really know where the joke is. She's the type of person that laugh tracks on a sitcom were invented for it, cues her where to laugh. But my mother laughs in her private life, not because it's something she wouldn't share in real life, but because things that she can relate to in her immediate life are what make her laugh. So things about her family, uh, references to her grandchildren or her nephews and her nieces, that type of thing um, stirs her to laughter. I think I understand what you're saying. Are there things that are maybe taboo in comedy that we wouldn't confess to laughing at, but we might? privately. Sure, of course there are. Um, but I don't consider that to be some sort of insidious effect. I heard somebody recently say that the worst type of censorship is self-censorship, which strikes me as very strange. I would think that the worst type of censorship would be the kind that would subjugate you and throw you in jail. Self-censorship seems to be the mildest form of censorship. It's uh, Sometimes you self-censor yourself to not start an argument with somebody, sometimes to keep the peace with your spouse. Um, so yes, of course, there's things that you laugh at privately that you might not publicly, but I don't see that as any kind of a weird problem. Speaking of sensuousness and authoritarian governments, do you think that humor is the best antidote, the best weapon? It certainly seems to have been a very effective weapon in Eastern Europe, for example, in their struggle against the Soviet occupation. The Czech humorists, of course, were brilliant. Uh, maybe it's a cultural thing. But um, is, is humor, by definition, always the opposite of authoritarianism? I don't think so. I don't think necessarily. Uh, Hitler's Germany banned much comedy. In fact, they threw a comedian into a concentration camp as early as 1935. A guy named Werner Fink was uh, uh, jailed for making jokes about the Nazis. But they permitted racist humor. They permitted anti-Semitic cartoons. So in that capacity, it wasn't the opposite. Was that humor, though? I mean, I guess it depends how you define it. it. I mean, there is, in my opinion, a difference between comedy and ridicule. Not everybody is adept at comedy, but even the least talented person can engage in ridicule. But there are people that do define ridicule and the demeaning of others as humor and comedy and I think that is part of the main debate in America today when people 
say, well, relax, it's just a joke. And other people are saying, no, it's racist, it's horrible. It's the difference between our interpretation of what is comedy and what is mere ridicule. What about you know who? I'm not going to mention his name, but he's everywhere, even if he's not on television these days so much because the, the main stations don't like him very much. He's supposed to be running for president again next year. Some people think he's funny. Some people think he's outrageous. Some people think he's particularly unfunny. What's your take on him and comedy? Well, we uh, have a different standard for people that are in politics than people who are in comedy. We have a different standard when somebody is on stage as a comedian and when they're just off stage riding the subway. You know, if you were to attend a show and the guy on stage was a famous insult comic, you're there for that. You're there for the insults. If you go to a roast, same thing. You're there to see the person be insulted and you enjoy it. If you take it outside the context of comedy and there's some guy insulting everybody on the subway, you don't enjoy it. This person is suddenly an asshole. So it would be the same with Donald Trump. We hold him to a different standard because he's not appearing as a performer. He's appearing as the president. He's appearing as a real estate mogul. You know, I, I take that point, but I don't want to speak on his behalf or his supporters' behalf, but they might argue that they've collapsed performance art and politics, and they're actually the same thing. And, and, and why distinguish between the two? Well, because one has the power of legislation and one doesn't. So obviously it's politics when you have the power at, of legislation at your behest. What does the history of show business that you've, you've told in your new book and the culture was, what does it tell us about 2023? How we can maintain our sense of humor, maintain an open society, maintain a, a degree of respect for one another, um, and uh, scare off the, the, the Lukianovs with their, their talk of uh, McCarthyism? Well, I think stepping away from the internet is uh, helpful. You know, I don't think repeatedly scrolling and reading the same hysteria over and over is helpful in any way. If you do that, it does feel like the sky is falling. And then you go outside and you see that the sky isn't falling. And for the most part, when you're walking around in your day-to-day -day life, whatever city you live in, people tend to be relatively civil. They're certainly not screaming at each other. We're not. I mean, people are watching this, listening to this on the internet, Cliff. I, we, you and I are not screaming at one another. Well, I, I'm thinking specifically of comment sections and social media. And you can watch the most benevolent video on YouTube clip from the Flintstones. I'm wearing a Hanna-Barbera cartoon on my shirt mm. today. And if you look at the comments, there's people arguing about creationism. They're complaining about, well, why can't we have clean humor like this today? The liberals have ruined it. Why can't the blah, 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 blah. You know, people bring politics into the most innocuous conversations on the internet and straight up hatred, you know. Um, they don't like your face and they will tell you that. But in everyday life, when you're at the grocery store, uh, very seldom are you confronted by somebody who screams how much they dislike your face. So I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what the solution is. But I think that repetition that we see with comment section and social media has so much to do with the engine of the hysteria that the sky is falling, that free speech is under attack, that this person is to blame, but dot, 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 dot. 
And for me, as somebody who loves comedy, who loves movies, TV, and show business, I like to enjoy myself. So I just don't see the same level of hysteria. It's fine to be concerned. It's fine to be engaged. But don't let it make you uh, crumble under the weight of your own anxiety. Are we always, though, Cliff, all of us, certainly include myself here, we're nostalgic for the the comedy of our youth. We're nostalgic for our youth as well. Um, and therefore, we all always inevitably, not just in comedy, but in broad cultural senses, we're always thinking golden ages. And that's just the nature of, of being alive. Yeah, there's a quote in the introduction to my book, Outrageous, from somebody who mentions that um, throughout history, change has also has often been mistaken for decline. When things change in our lives, in the city, in our culture, we feel that it's always a shift for the worse. But if you look at the history of great things, I live in Los Angeles, where the vintage architecture is incredible, whether it's Spanish colonial architecture or Art Deco, uh, it's very, very impressive. But it was all derided in its era. They said this architecture is terrible, it's gaudy, it has no continuity. Now we look at it as some of the great architecture. The same was true of many things that we now look upon fondly. This is a very innocuous example, but uh, Bob Saget, the comedian, passed away uh, a year and a half ago or so. He was the host of a show called America's Funniest Home Videos and a sitcom called Full House. Now, by any objective standard, both, both of those TV shows, which lasted a decade each, are terrible. They're bad shows. They're cheap shows. They're made for a juvenile audience. When Bob Saget died, there was an outpouring of love. Why? Not just because he was a nice guy, which he was, but because people grew up as children watching those shows. So they didn't remember that the shows weren't that great. They remembered that they loved this guy because they saw him on TV every day of their childhood, and that was good enough. So there is a nostalgic aspect. If somebody brand new that you had no affection for made those same TV shows today, you would criticize them as creating garbage. But we saw them as kids, and so we love him. And that's not to put him down. It's just a matter of um, uh, childhood rosiness sort of colors these things. Yeah, in your work and in your op-eds, you write about um, the Smothers Brothers and you write about Richard Pryor and many other controversial comics. Do you have a, a favorite comic? What makes you laugh? No, I don't have a favorite uh, comedian necessarily. Or a, I, like, I mean, a few. Who, who, who do you really Yeah, I love uh, pure comedy for comedy's sake. I'm not a fan of political comedy, even though I sometimes write about politics. I like jokey jokes. I like Mitch Hedberg. I like Emo Phillips. I like Rodney Dangerfield. I like Stephen Wright. I like people that are there to get as many laughs as possible in the shortest amount of time. That to me makes me happy. And I don't really care lectured. I don't like it when comedians turn serious. These days, Dave Chappelle has become uh, half serious, half funny. And I kind of resent it because I believe that if you were born with the gift of funniness, if you have the knack to make people laugh, 
That is a skill that the majority of people on planet Earth do not possess. Not everybody can be funny, but anybody can be serious. So when comedians turn serious, it frustrates me. To me, it's like a betrayal of their skill and their art form. I want the person to be able to make me laugh as much as possible in the shortest amount of time. Can't you be serious, though, and funny? Uh, one thinks of Jon Stewart, uh, Stephen Colbert, or you think by definition those late-night TV hosts uh, aren't particularly funny because they're becoming more and more serious. Well, the thing I liked about Jon Stewart is that it always ended with a big laugh. Um, Dave Chappelle's most recent special I found mystifying, and Hannah Gatsby did the same thing. It ended in silence, intentionally. I've never seen a comedian intentionally end their stand-up special with no laughter. It was a serious point, meant to be profound, drop the mic and walk off. And he got a standing ovation and everybody applauded, but I was disappointed. I wanted to end on the strongest possible laugh when I did stand-up. That's how I was trained. Uh, you try to start strong, finish strong, and if you had a bunch of crap, you shoved it in the middle and tried to fool the people into thinking it wasn't as bad as it was. What about the generational issue, um, Cliff? Lots of arguments. I've got, I don't know if you've got any kids. I've got kids. Uh, they laugh at my jokes, but they have to. Um, some of them, at least, seem to be pretty serious. Is there a generational quality to this, or, or do old people or older people always think that kids lack humor? There's always a generational quality, and even that idea that old people think young people lack humor is sort of a generational quality. In the culture wars, one of the examples that has been used that colleges are out of control or college students and millennials have no sense of humor, they point to a quote from Jerry Seinfeld in which he said he didn't want to play college campuses anymore because he felt there was a creepy PC thing that turned him off. Now, Jerry Seinfeld does not look it, but he's 70 years old. And the average college student is what, 19, 20, 21? If you look to the late 1960s, a similar thing was happening. College students did not want to hear from Bob Hope. Bob Hope was one of America's most beloved comedians, but he became a more conservative stalwart as the years uh, went on. And he was friends with presidents that college students had contempt for, and he boosted the Vietnam War, which many students had contempt for. They didn't want to see Bob Hope. They wanted to see comedians that reflected their point of view and that they could uh, bond with in a certain way. So Robert Klein, George Carlin, those were the young comedians of the late 60s that were popular with college students. And I believe it's the same today. Somebody who's 20 doesn't really want to listen to a 70-year-old comedian. I love Jerry Seinfeld. I think he's funny. But I think it, it, it's understandable that a 19-year-old might prefer a comedian who's 25 that they could relate to better. So I think there is always indeed a generational aspect to these issues rock and rollers uh cliff was supposed to die young a lot of them did what about comedians uh i once got compared to lenny bruce which was the best compliment i ever got uh should comedians if not die certainly leave the stage while they're young well i don't think age matters but um there is something to the idea. I don't know. I don't think it really matters. But I will say that as many comedians age, you know, if they started young, they were the hip young comic, they had a hip young following. Often as a comedian ages, 
their fan base and their audience ages with them. They don't generally get a whole new crowd of young fans when they're in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. I went and saw my friend Robert Klein perform at the Improv in Los Angeles a few years ago, and he was one of the hottest young comics of the late 1960s. He inspired a whole generation of comedians, including Jerry Seinfeld and Jay Leno and Bill Maher. When I went to see him at the Improv on Melrose, this was probably in 2015, I was the youngest person there. And he was, I think, 78 at the time. Most of the audience was in their 70s or early 80s. And they'd all been hip young kids. So they sort of uh, uh, traveled with him, so to speak, and loved him for their entire lives. But he didn't bring in a fresh new young audience. Again, the young people uh, were interested in comedians that reflected their generation, their sensibility, people they could relate to. People often respond to comedy best when they can relate to it. And that's what makes them laugh. Final question, Cliff, in terms of your history. Um, what does it teach us in terms of regulation? What should and shouldn't be allowed? And, and what laws should and shouldn't exist in terms of what people can say? Well, it's a good question. I don't know if previous guests have used this phrase, but I sometimes hear people say, I'm a free speech absolutist. I'm a First Amendment absolutist. And there's no such thing. We have so many exceptions in American law that sometimes circumvent the First Amendment, and we take them for granted to such a degree that we don't consider them uh, censorship. Slander laws, uh, libel laws, copyright laws, uh, laws against threats and incitement, vandalism laws. I would like to ask a free speech absolutist, if somebody spray painted swear words on the side of your house, is that free expression? And if you paint over that, is that censorship? If you're super dogmatic about it, you'd say yes, but I don't think any logical person would say yes. They would paint over it. In that capacity, vandalism laws, property laws, uh, override the First Amendment consideration. There are so many examples like that, they're hypotheticals, but that exist already under American law. In 1952, there was a court case in Illinois uh, I might be pronouncing the guy's name wrong, but Bohannes versus the state of Illinois, a guy was distributing Ku Klux Klan propaganda and Nazi propaganda on leaflets throughout Chicago. He was arrested and charged with what today we would call hate speech. The phrase didn't exist at the time. They called it uh, group libel or group slander, meaning the same concept as a slander or libel law, but targeting a large group as opposed to an individual. And he was convicted on that count by the uh, court of Illinois, the state courts, and it was challenged. He was represented by the ACLU in 1952, who said, no, you are uh, violating this First Amendment rights. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court in 1953, and they upheld the conviction. They said, no, you are uh, guilty of group libel, of group slander. Very seldom does that charge come up today, but that was way back in the early 1950s, and it wasn't considered McCarthyism. It wasn't particularly controversial, but you call it hate speech, it suddenly becomes very controversial. And another argument you sometimes hear against hate speech laws is that there's no definition. How do you define hate speech? Who decides? But I would counter argue, how do you define slander? How do you define libel? Well, the courts do, and they often uh, uphold slander and libel laws. Sometimes you might agree with it, sometimes you might disagree with it, but those laws exist. And are they a violation of the First Amendment? You could 
argue that they are, or you could argue that it's logical that they circumvent the First Amendment. 